until the job is done. Quote unquote, until the job is done. That's the one thing that markets are the most in denial about. I think he has his eye on possibly getting rid of the Fed put. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, one of the most trusted stable coins in the digital asset industry. You'll be hearing all about them later in the show. So last time uh, I think we did an interview was about a year ago. Uh, you and I were having a discussion about how the Fed had stayed too loose for too long, and we were kind of starting to wonder, uh, when are we going to start to hike rates? Well, fast forward to now, uh, we've seen multiple 75 basis point hikes, which almost no one outside of Quill Intelligence uh, you know, predicted or saw coming. Um, and as, the, as we are aggressively hiking, we're starting to see a record uh, you know, demand destruction in the economy and things are starting to turn. And the question is, are we in a recession? Is the Fed tightening into the teeth of a recession? Give us your kind of high level overview of what you think is going on right now. I'm going to get a, a little wonky for just a second. Um, mm. We've never seen a collapse of the magnitude that we're witnessing in imports. Mm. That is always a telltale sign that you're already looking through the rearview mirror at recession. So, I mean, when, when imports collapse, that means that that the American consumer, who is 70% of GDP, is, is really stepping back. I bring that up because I'm going to get even wonkier and talk about GDP math. So mm. <clears throat> despite the fact that, that the trade deficit math has been um, flattering GDP, my favorite uh, – Arbiter, my favorite GDP model, uh, which is out of S&P Global after they acquired IHS Market, he's at 0.8% for the third quarter. Mm. So my standing question is, knowing what else we're going to talk about, housing, cars, everything that, that, that's, that's, that's interest rate sensitive, that the Fed has actively destroyed demand um, with, with, these, with, with this tightening that we've seen, all of this data has not come in for the final edge of this quarter, and the starting point is a rounding error. So my my question to you is, <clears throat> do you foresee yourself asking other people if we're in recession, if we have a third consecutive negative print? No, I don't. Okay, see, that, hence my great big setup. I don't think that once we get that third negative print in a row that we're going to be having this great debate anymore. Is there, is there going to be a soft landing? Can the Fed engineer thread the needle, blah, 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 whatever Goldman Sachs said last week? No, I, I think that it's going to be resolved, and I think it's going to be resolved pretty quickly given the, 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 the sharp pivot we're seeing in areas of the economy that dictate where it goes. I've heard you describe the Fed as a bunch of academics in their sweaters, you know, with their little elbow pads, uh, kind of looking at models that don't necessarily describe the real world, right? Isn't the Fed part of the reason why they're around is they're supposed to smooth the business cycle, right? We know we've got their dual mandate of price stability and unemployment, but they're supposed to be smoothing the business cycle. How could they possibly do that if they're not paying attention to ISM, PMI, forward-looking indicators, and instead only looking at indicators lagging indicators like CPI, because it seems like they're not smoothing anything. It seems like they're exacerbating the tops and the bottoms. All right. So I'm going to get a little spicy here. Um, <laughs> I love it. Jay Powell's not an academic. And Jay Powell knows that he was led astray by academics in the house uh, with this whole transitory BS that went on for way too long. Mm. Um, I don't think he's necessarily paying attention to them as much as we think he is. And here's why. Uh, I, I think he has bigger goals 
I, I think he has his eye on possibly getting rid of the Fed put. Now, if you want to do that, the best thing for you to do is to is to pretend that you're following the wrong data. You fo- fo- follow the jobs data that you know is lagged, follow inflation data that you know is lagged, use it in the opposite way that you used poorly measured inflation to be too low for too long. Just flip the narrative on its head. Say the economy is so strong because these lagging indicators say it's so strong and therefore mm. I'm going to tighten into this really strong economy knowing damn well you're not and that you're going to break something. Mm. So what's the what's the reason for him? Why would that be Powell's kind of white whale? You know, why does he want to eliminate the Fed put? I think a lot of things, but but I, I say to myself, you know, he's worth upwards of what, $100, $150 million? Mm-hmm. Why is he sticking around? Mm. If there's not a higher purpose for him, if it's not his legacy that he's looking after, and what change could you possibly make that would be meaningful and lasting other than taking back the Fed put that, that Greenspan gave birth to in 1987? I mean, mm. what more could you do than allow monetary policy to start working on its own instead of having the financial markets dictate monetary policy, which is what it's been since Greenspan, who said it, it was it was documented in his biography that he was intimidated by the stock market. That was kind of what made the person Atlas shrugged or not. It was right. what made monetary policymaker who he became. And that was the tail wagging the dog, the financial markets dictating monetary policy. If you're going to ever get away with that and truly be an independent central bank again, you have to break the Fed put. I agree with you. I think Powell's a smart guy. And you often hear, how could he possibly be saying this? And I think he's a smart guy and he knows more than he's necessarily letting on. How much do you think the policy that we're seeing come out of the Federal Reserve is a concern about legacy, right, for him? You know, we've we've all now heard... the Burns versus the Volcker, right? But walk us through, like, try to put yourself in the shoes of Powell. Like, how do you think he's thinking just as a person, as Powell the person right now? We have to remember, it's not just Powell reading history. And it's not just him looking back at at, <clears throat> at the Burns era or at the Volcker era. Volcker was his mentor. Mm. Volcker was his idol. Mm. Um, I think he's realistic enough to know that debt to GDP versus 130%. They're diametrically different backdrops. Powell's not naive. But I think that legacy is a major driving force right now for him, despite the obstacles that he has compared to those that Volcker had, who I remind people as often as I can, got death threats when he was in Mm. office. That's how mm-hmm. I, we, we idolize him. We think, I mean, Queen Elizabeth just passed away. She was the uber monarch of our time. Paul Volcker was the uber central banker of our time. Mm-hmm. We say that today, but when he was doing the hard work that he was doing, he was getting death threats. He was the most hated man in America. Now, what do you think this means for Fed policy going into the end of the year, right? The expect the market is pricing in, I think, a 75 basis point hike right at the next FOMC. We've got uh, Timmy Eros, who is all but uh, accepting checks uh, from the Federal Reserve at this point. Uh, I joke, but uh, he's certainly- I not say that. You said it. 
Uh, but he certainly provided abnormally good insight, let's say, into what's going to happen uh, coming up from C meetings. Um, so that's September. Walk us through, like, where do you think we get in terms of rates? How successful is the Fed going to be in bringing rates up? I would personally have advocated for the Fed stepping back mm. and calling for a communication blackout uh, that went through the FOMC meeting for November mm. and for six, seven days after that. And no decision at all, no movement at all, because it's six days before the election. Mm. I, you know, if, if I had to guess, I would think that Powell will push through with another 50 and another 50 mm. in November, December. Mm. And, and furthermore, because he has said most recently, until the job is done, quote unquote, until the job is done. And at Jackson Hole with his eight minute and 28 second speech. He was extremely curt, brief in saying, we're going to keep him there. I think that that's, the, that that's the one thing that markets are the most in denial about. It's not just that, <clears throat> that he's going to get interest rates to a higher level. It's that he plans on leaving him there and shrinking the balance sheet the entire time. So I, I don't think a single market participant right now would say Jay Powell is going to get the Fed funds rate up to whatever, almost 4%, leave it there for all of 2023 and shrink the balance sheet. It almost seems like there are two separate futures that we could be engaging in here, right? One is kind of a future of austerity where we say, whoa, whoa, things have gone way too far, right? We need to be talking about jet debt to GDP. We need to raise rates up. We need to take our proverbial medicine, so to speak, reset the stock market, and then kind of go on in that sense. And then there's kind of door number two, in which case we say, look, there's no way we're ever going to normalize that to GDP. We're not going to be able to austere our way out of this. We're essentially going to have, we're going to let inflation float above rates. We're going to engage in some soft form of yield curve control, some form of financial oppression, and we're going to do government handouts. I don't know if you saw the, the $150 billion package that was proposed by the new prime minister over in the UK. One of the very first things she did, $150 billion bailout price controls on energy, proposing energy uh, energy caps. That is a strong data point, at least for me, that we go towards door number two. I don't know if you see the world kind of divided towards in these two paths, though. I mean, now you're asking me about politics, which is fine. <laughs> talk about politics, yeah. <laughs> uh, because I don't think philosophically you're going to get um, <clears throat> a Republican Congress to pass that kind of legislation. Um, there's two, there, for, for the moment at least, there's too public of a recognition among politicians that it was fiscal relief that caused inflation. So now you're talking about the Bank of England having to offset this fiscal largesse that's being bandied about in the UK. Now you're talking about the Bank of England having to be more aggressive than they otherwise would have been in order to offset this threat to inflation, this new $150 billion of spending that you're describing. So, what you're, what you're talking about is potentially a recession that's so um, debilitating and lasting that politicians change their mind about how fiscal spending, we go back to where we were when the pandemic hit and say, okay, we're just going to hand out money and we're just going to let inflation fly. I don't think that happens in the next two years. And I think that that in and of itself is meaningful because it's going to dictate where the economy goes and how weak it could potentially get if we quit giving money away. You know, we we kind of started this interview out with, uh, you know, in your in your own words, a little bit of wonk talk, right, about GDP numbers specifically. Sometimes when you hear those numbers, like there are a lot of uh, 
you know, indices and indicators uh, that get kind of thrown out. GDP, you know, we talk about manufacturing, uh, like ISM, that kind of thing. I'd love uh, for you to kind of connect it. Like, what's your personal way of measuring economic pain when it comes to just the average uh, sort of citizen of the United States, right? Like, what are they really paying attention to? How do all of these numbers and these indices and indicators that we track, how do they all relate to what is really going to be painful for people? Because this is when I want to transition into the housing market and the importance there in turning things around. So I I think... um I think that if there's one thing that we follow the most closely um, in on the cyclical side of the economy, it's backlogs. Because mm. backlogs dictate pent-up demand or lack thereof. So seeing backlogs go negative these last few months tells me it, it, I didn't need to see the employment report to see hours worked declined. I knew that was coming. The backlogs told me it was coming. Mm. So you don't have to work your employees for as many hours if you're not trying to get rid of this this bottleneck that you'd had, this pent-up demand that you needed to satisfy. You don't need to hire as many people. We've seen job postings um, that have been tracked since day one of the pandemic. We've seen job postings um, go to negative 1.6% nationwide the week ending September the 1st. But I didn't need to see that data come out because backlogs told me that that data was going to come out. So you have to find leading indicators that are going to tell you what's happening. Uh, we, we follow uh, we follow the move index very closely to see how how credit risk is filtering into the economy. Because if you can track credit risk, then you can track broader economic trends. We watch housing. We watch housing very very closely. Uh, again, when you have real time indicators. And when you have PTSD from working at the Federal Reserve for nine years, like I do, the more real time, the better. The less seasonally adjusted, the better. Purchase applications on a weekly basis tell you a whole heck of a lot about housing activity. When we saw the decline after the housing bust um, of 2007, 2008, 2009, it took 164 weeks to get to the level of weakness that we've gotten to in half that time Mm. in the current cycle as dictated by weekly purchase applications. So we know how quickly housing is weakening. And that screams in terms of the potential for economic growth going forward, because it's not just the home you buy, it's what you put in it. It's the insurance you pay that's gone up a lot. It's the property taxes that have gone through the roof that have helped a lot of states and municipalities and their financing. All of these things, there's a massive trickle-down effect from housing into other areas of the economy. Hence the phrase, housing is the economy, right? Um, so I want to I I dive a little bit deeper there because that's, again, something that we've been exploring on the show. I'm going to try to share my screen here and tell uh, maybe the story of housing and the starting of the turn in, in three charts here, uh, or I'm going to try to. So we're looking at here is the S&P Case-Shiller U.S. National Home Price Index, which, especially if you're looking at through 2020, it's that funny little recessionary bar. It's basically been one arrow straight up, right? And especially if you've been either trying to rent or, you know, buy an apartment or a home in a, and especially an urban area, you've really seen this, right? Just exactly how crazy uh, home prices are. At the same time, right, since, uh, you know, beginning in about September of 2021, when uh, rates bar or rates bottomed on like the 30 year fixed average, uh, you know, you've basically seen a doubling, right, in how expensive it is uh, to get a mortgage in the United States. You know, peaking out at just under six percent. Uh, 
when it was actually, you know, 3% uh, or so just about a year ago. Um, and what you're starting to, I think, finally see is a turning of the tide, right? So if you're, if you're just listening to me on audio and not following along visually, we're looking at basically a stacked bar chart of uh, home prices in the United States. And it's based on uh, home prices that are increasing, and that's the green. Uh, there's a yellow part of the chart, which is staying flat. And then there's mostly decreasing, which is this orange bar. And, you know, going back to July of 2021, uh, all the way through to about April of 22, you know, anywhere from, you know, 68, you know, 63, 68, all the way up to 90% of home prices were increasing on a month over month basis. Since April, it's really turned. And now 35% of homes are decreasing. 45% are staying the same and only 20% are going up. So it looks like that lagging rate in between what mortgage rates do and the price of homes is finally starting to take effect. I guess, Danielle, based on these three charts, anything kind of stand out or surprising to you? And do you agree that you're, you, that we're starting to see a turnover in, in home prices? Um, I do. And, and I think people need to keep, uh, keep in the back of their minds, in our lifetimes, we've seen house prices decline on a national basis. But historically speaking, it's, ex- it's exceedingly rare to see this. So if we're about to see it twice, and it looks like we're about to see it twice, there's go- there are going to be pockets of, of strength where affordability remains. You could have thrown a fourth chart up there with data that came out yesterday that shows that housing affordability is the worst ever. Yeah, And that's brand new, fresh data, <clears throat> which is something we know when we add up these three charts. Um, I-, I think the bigger takeaway... And I also think that Jay Powell is is savvy to what I'm about to say is on day one, when you get inside the Federal Reserve, they teach you, they drill it into your head that monetary policy um, acts with a lag Mm. and that it takes a while, maybe nine months, maybe 18 months, maybe 24 months to filter through whether you're easing or tightening policy into the real economy. What the turning on a dime tells you, the the rapidity with which we're seeing not just housing, but other markets, other areas of the economy turn, it's telling you that because monetary policy was as aggressive as it was, blowing the balance sheet up to $9 trillion, um, keeping rates at the zero bound for a, a, for, for a long time at the same time that you're pumping this much liquidity into the system, what we're learning right now through the prism of housing initially is that the lag time has been incredibly shortened. Mm. And that makes a huge difference when we're watching, to, to quote Chair Powell again, when we're watching the Fed push through, quote unquote, unusually large rate increases. Well, if they're unusually large and we have, if assuming <clears throat> assuming only 50 basis points at the, at the September FOMC, if it's 75, then you can amplify what I'm about to say. But just assuming 50 basis points, we will have tightened policy five, t- excuse me, three times quicker, three times quicker than we have in any episode going back to 1980. <laughs> That's I me. Mean, chew on that for a minute. Yeah. And that also helps explain why we're not seeing that same lagged effect. This is not 25 basis points, 17 meetings in a row. That's what we saw during the Greenspan era. That's what made the word measured great again. Measured approach. <laughs> Tippy toe. Let's not break anything. This is like bull in a china shop monetary policy making. It's fast. It's brutal. 
They're unusually large and it's working its way through the economy lightning fast, which is why it's so important to go back to Powell saying until the job is done, which isn't even 3%, it's 2%. Until inflation's back down to where it's supposed to be, we're going to keep interest rates at a high level. Mm. That's why that's so important. Because if he's going to leave policy tight for an exceedingly long period of time, it's not going to be the garden variety recession that a lot of people who want to work from home on Mondays and Fridays and do yoga when they are in the office on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays and have safe zones. It's not going to be the kind of recession that that those types of quiet quitting workers are accustomed to. Yeah, I have I have some uh, it, the the quiet quitting thing is is pretty funny. We're looking at a um, this is a little chart on this, but uh, you know yeah, I'm happy to hear somebody from your generation say that. Uh, Just I feel like I may, maybe have my foot a little bit in both in both camps here. Let me let me try to be a little diplomatic because I also have strong views on this. Um, quiet quitting is let's just say that this is not an acceptable thing, right? That, that that's just that's just called coasting or slacking or use whatever vernacular you want from whatever generation. That's it's no way to live your life, son. <laughs> but uh, so I'm I'm definitely against that. I think um, if I had to steel man the argument for maybe how Gen Z feels, uh, it's that they don't see the path for their future, right? I think the path is clearer or more mixed than it's ever been. When you don't see a clear path that's laid out in front of you for this is how I'm going to achieve, this is how I'm going to better my life, this is how I'm going to achieve financial independence, this is how I'm going to do all of these things that felt available to generations in the past, then what do you do? You don't feel bought in. You basically give up um, and you say, look, this this isn't going to be for me and try to prioritize other things. I've long been of the, the mindset that People say millennials have different uh, different preferences than their parents. They they don't care as much about material things. Uh, they want to take vacations. I just don't believe that's true. I just think they can't afford the things that their parents could afford. Uh, so they you know try to do what they try to exert power where they can. Uh, by the way, I agree with everything you just said. Last time I spoke with somebody about nihilism, it was you. Yeah, right. So I complete. I think that's the Steelman argument. On the other hand, it's hard for me not to be like, okay, I understand your perspective, but come on. You know, uh, I have I've real mixed feelings about how effective work from home is. Um, uh, I think, look, there, if, if I could, if I could do, do a trade, I would go, yeah, I think there's a perfect correlation in between earnings price um, and unemployment rate and work from home. You know, as earnings go down, uh, and, and, and unemployment goes up, there are going to be less people working from home or, or choice number two is your employers are going to say, yeah, work from home, but you got to install this key tracker and uh, we're going to watch everything you do. I mean, those are the two, those are the two futures that we're headed towards here. I fully believe. I was having a discussion with a a client yesterday. I, I think what people are missing is there's this massive gap in between office occupancy and it not recovering and what we've seen in terms of work from home, just with Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly data, we've seen that go from 35% May of 2020 to 6.5% mm. people working remotely. So it's a much lower number than what we think it is. Now that's people mm. working permanently. That that's That's their entire job working from home. Right. But how on earth is office occupancy not up a lot more Mm. if work from homes come down 
so dramatically. Why, why didn't that look like a seesaw? Hmm. And I think that, that something that corporations have done very quietly, and I was talking to a client about this yesterday, I think that what we have not witnessed, but that has occurred is big data. Mm-hmm. So when companies at the very beginning in Silicon Valley were like, we don't care where you're working from home. You can work from home from Timbuktu for all I care. I don't care if you're 400 miles away from Silicon Valley or a thousand. As long as you get your work done, you can work from anywhere. A light bulb went off. I think you probably know where I'm going with this. Yeah. A light bulb went off. And that was companies saying, well, gee, I could have an employee anywhere, depending on what I need them to do. So mm-hmm. there has there's been a there's been a wave of outsourcing that is tied to big data that um, my, my best example, even though you could apply it to accounting, you could apply it to all kinds of, uh, of, of highly paid, by the way. And that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. This is not somebody on a manufacturing line making widgets all day long, mm-hmm. rote work that makes your head want to explode. This is not outsourcing this to, to, to Guangdong. It's not that. It's not that. It's paralegals. Mm. It's, it's law offices that were emptied out and the partners looked around and they were like, we don't need all these books in this law library. It fits on a chip. All we need is English proficiency. And we can find that, we've just been told by all of our employees, in Timbuktu, all the way over halfway around the world. Mm. So that, I think, is something that we're going to have. We've had the great resignation. We've had quiet quitting. I think we're going to, oh my gosh, I just came up with this. I just got goosebumps. We're going to have the great recognition. We're going to have the great recognition that a Mm. lot of jobs simply are not coming back. And more importantly, that they're up the income ladder. I speak to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance. And as it turns out, they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust. I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, in a compliant manner. Helps me sleep easy at night, you know? As a seamless trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exec team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. All right, we coined on on the margin, Danielle. I've got, I've got. Does that kind of inform one thing that's been persistently curious for me, right? Because I'm also of the belief like we're in a recession, and I get we're debating about it, but I'm I'm, I'm with you there. Like companies have already, you you see the earnings estimates start to revert. I still think they're being optimistic, but they're at least starting to revert. One thing that's been persistently still hot is the labor market in general. Do you have an explanation for why that is? So you're referring to conventional labor market data. So I'm going to, I'm going to play Socrates for just a minute. Uh, I called it my blind squirrel moment. 
it was like, Danielle's right. It happens more often than I say it. But <laughs> I predicted that we would see about a month before we saw it, I predicted that we would see millions of mothers flood into the workforce. Mm. And we saw it. 2000 was the last time that we had labor force participation among 25 to 34 year old women as high as it, as it was. We've taken that high out in the space of a month when schools reopened, right? Because when you pay people $2,500 extra a month and cover their rent and they're working in childcare or nursing homes or, or home health care, they are getting out of the labor force. Bye-bye. Mm. That's two mm. or three times the multiple of what they were making, right? Mm. Childcare costs went through the roof. There weren't any workers. So the moms mm. were like, I can't, I can't go back. But Uncle Sam's money ran out. Uncle mm. Sam's money ran out with income tax refund season. Those were the last big checks. Food stamp program up 25% by executive order, Biden. That started October the 1st, 2021. That's the last big chunk of, of money, cash that was sent out to Americans. That ran out and it ran out and it was a long, hot summer for these moms with gas prices as high as they were having to be tethered at home with their school age kids. Mm. The minute they could get back into the workforce, they went flooding in and we saw the unemployment rate go up as a result mm. because so many people flooded back into the workforce. Now we have job openings that are negative nationwide. Mm. Job openings in leisure and hospitality. They they're down 9%. This mm. is weekly data. And we've seen, we have multiple job workers and I'm hearing this from your generation. Mm. They're like, I'm, I'm a quiet quitter times two. I have two full-time jobs. Mm. I don't like either of them, but I have to have them. We've never in American history had as many multiple job workers full-time. This is not, I'm working Uber on the side for 20 hours a week plus my 40-hour job. It's mm. not that. We're talking mm. about double, uh, 35 hours times two by the standards of the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. We're not seeing a lot of the slack that we otherwise would we're the generation that was going to get paid $2,500 extra federal. That made filing unemployment insurance claims worth it. Now they're like, the state's going to pay me what? That'll cover like a third of my rent. Mm. I can't file for unemployment. I have to get a job. I have mm. to stay in the workforce. I have mm. to fill that position. So by necessity, we are seeing strength in the job market and jobs that nobody wanted to take get taken. And we have to remember a lot of these silicon, ask your buddies, ask your friends, because mm. I don't like to talk to you. They're like, that, that woman's mean to our generations. Um, <laughs> ask your friends about their severance package. Yeah. Because we've had a lot of severance packages written for these Silicon Valley workers. I actually just spoke to, I uh, just did an interview for a woman uh, earlier, earlier today, uh, and she was describing an unpopular HR policy uh, that got implemented. It was one of these, um, you know, no talking about politics at work. And a bunch more people took it than they thought were, were going to take it. And the reason why was because the severance package, they were like, hey, we're rolling out this policy. You don't want to talk about politics at work. You can take, you can leave uh, if you don't feel like you can work here. And they offered a six month severance package. So a bunch of people who actually might still have been happy took it. Because they were like, yeah, I'll find a job in two weeks. Like, thanks for the extra six months, like 0.5%. You 
you know, thanks for the 50% raise essentially, because here's six months of free income. Uh, right. I mean, that's just extraordinary. And it, yeah. and it also goes to show you how stupidly costly, I'm going to say it out loud, how stupidly costly woke is. Mm. I mean, somebody's going to look back in a year or so when we're eyeball deep in recession and they're going to be like, why did we spend that money? Mm. That was cash out the, that was cash flow out the door. And we could really use that cash back right now. Yeah. I think, I kind of think, you know, two points that I would make based on this discussion we're having is I think in general, it's been so good for so long in tech that it has drastically, uh, people, it has given people a false understanding in my generation of how much work it takes in to get X amount of dollars out. Like I have friends that, you know, work at big, you know, super well-funded tech companies. And it's like, yeah, show up like nine to five, you know, the expectations you make like 200,000 bucks. And it's like, and like, here's all this extra stuff just for fun. Go back and look at like these tech darlings, Twitter, Snap, Pinterest, Mm -hmm. look at what they IPO'd at and look at what they're at now. So that might actually be, we might be seeing the end of that. But I think where people might not see where this is heading and where I really don't want it to head is if it's like, hey, I just want to be judged on the merits of my work. I don't want to show into the office. I want to remove human connection. What you're going to replace that very human tissue with is something that looks mechanical. Like every move is just tracked, submit everything to a worksheet. Like, and I just, I personally, I just don't think, I don't think that's the kind of workplace or world that I want to live in. But, and I worry that people aren't looking at that with open eyes. That's, that's scary. Yeah. I just don't think it's, it's a really inline trend. So what's your, what's your kind of thought in general? I'm just going to throw something philosophically out there because I'm one of these crazy people who are like, I paid off my student loans. I'm pissed off at the government. I want a refund. On the plus side, I learned a lot on a trading floor. Mm. I, I learned a lot being surrounded by my colleagues when I got out of business school. There's, some, there's something to be said for human flesh, for collaboration, mm-hmm. for connectivity. Mm. And plus, it, you know, it, 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 I'm, I'm not socially retarded as a result. I mean, I, I, can, I can exist in society. There's just there's certain things I, I think that we, need to, that we need to look back at and say, you know what, those were good things. That, that was virtuous. Mm-hmm. And, and it would benefit so many who were doing their laundry in the middle of the day, which I completely empathize with. I, I used to have to buy new clothes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I kind of see both sides of it. I just think you don't get something with without giving something up in return. And I just think approaching situations with like your eyes wide open, right, about trade-offs is just very important. Um, and I, I just don't think people are being, I think people are looking at a situation being like, I, I just don't think people are being realistic. Um, I'd love to get your, your view uh, like, what are you paying attention to that we might not have covered so far in the next like 12? Because there are so many things all of a sudden going on in the world. It's gone from a place uh, that was there was a lot going on, but felt contained to like, there are these hot spots kind of all over the place. There's the European energy situation, right? Which seems extremely dire. It seems like a world in crisis over there. Uh, over in Asia, right? There's an enormous amount of stress uh, on the like the CCP level. Uh, there are, again, these like weird war games that are going on in between China and Taiwan. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, I think the the geopolitical strain or risk factor has almost never been higher. So I guess, what else are you kind of paying attention to, maybe either worried about, excited about going into, let's say, the new year? I I tend to worry because if there's one word that has not been thrown around a lot, which I think is realistic, Mm -hmm. it's it's decoupling. Um, Mm. 
I think that we're so shell-shocked from how bad the supply chain disruption affected inflation and affected what we could and couldn't get our hands on, uh, that we know we're not decoupled from the rest of the world. And yet everything you just described, we're also not acknowledging the effect that it will have right. on our economy, on, on society. A, a different client on a different day recently told me that people on the left, uh, many of whom are, are veterans uh, of the armed forces of the United States, are armed up to the teeth. Hmm. A, a recent poll found that 43% of Americans in the next 10 years anticipate being in civil war. It's a big number. Hmm. And what I didn't realize is that so many of the things that you describe, the nihilism that you describe, hmm. actually has a gun with it. Hmm. And that what we typically think of, we just think of those whack jobs on the right who are armed to the teeth, even if they don't have teeth, and they're ready to go to war, and they're they're ready to take up arms if, if their way of life is disturbed. That same um, amount of of anxiety and anger is also building up on the other side. And a, a wise older person said to me recently, "There's nothing that can unite a country more than war. War outside." Meaning, yeah, common bringing, enemy. Bringing back a draft, mm. and and I said, well, that's that's deep, that's really really deep. Mm. But if you want to bring a country together, I mean, we were very much anti anything in the 1930s. But if you want to bring a country together, get the draft going. Mm. Uh, you know, it's a funny story about this. My grandpa fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. He, I actually watched this interview that he did recently. I, I, my mom like found it on YouTube. Uh, you know, it's got like 60 views. Uh, and he was describing, he, you know, came from no money, immigrant family, all this stuff, classic like American story, uh, had one semester left in college that he was putting himself through, dropped out to go fight in the war. Can you imagine that? Can you? Because he was like, I'm so proud of my country. All my friends are doing this, like felt this like social pressure and to do right and to go... Can you imagine? <laughs> I, would... again. I did. Yeah. I mean, you know, I asked, I asked Grandpa DiMartino um, before he died. So I, I was an adult by then. I asked Grandpa DiMartino because I, I, I lived in Caracas and come back. I spoke fluent Spanish at the time. I was like, wow, this is a skill. And I said, why didn't you ever teach dad and Uncle Philip and Auntie Geraldine and Uncle Don- why, why don't they speak Italian? For God's sake. Mm. That was a skill that they could have picked up in the home. And this man who came over at the age of two in 1923, fought in World War II, learned how to be an auto mechanic, opened up two DiMartino Sunoco stations on either side of I-95 outside of New Haven. He's like, why would I ever disparage my country by speaking anything but English, given everything they did for me? Hmm. And that was a World War II veteran who was the American dream. So Hmm. there's something to be said for... If our whack job politicians on both sides are unwilling to unify the country, then maybe something bigger can. And I hate to say that. I've got three boys who would be affected by this, 18, 16, 14 years old. So I don't want to envision war in our future. But everything that's happening right now is kind of scary 
And it's real. And you're right. In our lifetimes, we've never seen this constellation of geopolitical events occurring concurrently. I kind of feel like um, a pretty good maxim throughout history is you want to you want to create that path, right? This happens at like a company, right? If you're an employee at a company, very important for your manager to be like, hey, this is where you are today. Uh, if you do thing X, Y, and Z, which this should be achievable for you, then you'll get to place A, B, or C. And you're like, oh, okay, I feel like I can do that. I feel like what we need is a is a is an investment in the younger people of the country so that they feel enfranchised. And we can move away from this trend of quiet quitting. I And you know what? <laughs> Again, in history, it's like, this is the way you do it. This is what we did with the GI Bill, right? For my grandpa back in World mm-hmm. War II. This Absolutely. is what he got when he got home. Education, housing, yep, small business yep. credit. Yep. And as it turns out, you, you go, there's a great book, Lessons of History, Will and Ariel Arnett. They've, they've got this whole encyclopedia. They've actually com- like 100 pages. This happened in like, they've got an example of like Greece from like 500 BC. And it was a very similar thing. What they did was they erased some of the debt they people who fought in the war recently. They gave them uh, free housing. Uh, they and shoot, there was one other big thing. But it was like, oh my god, they had the same problems back then. Like we yeah. have the same problems today. We actually have a playbook for this. And I don't. I just feel like no one's really talking about it like that. Well, you know? I mean, and, and, you know, the most fascinating aspect of the GI Bill was that it had a rather sizable provision for unemployment. If you couldn't mm. get a job when you came back from the war, th- the soldiers wouldn't take it. Yeah, they would not apply. The, the funds were never exhausted. Mm. They're like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to take a handout. I'm going to, I'm going to capitalize on this opportunity, which has got a hell of a lot more dignity. They didn't take the, they didn't take the handout. I completely agree with you. I think we've mm. come up with a solution for the entire country. This is good. Mm. I agree. We should broadcast this on all the major channels. I'll, I'll call up. I'll call up. I'll call up my bat phone, <laughs> President Biden. We'll get this uh, on the airwaves. But I, I agree. I think you know what I think is also important. Um, I just I recorded with Mark today. You know, we do our roundups together, uh, Mark Yusko. Mm-hmm. I I feel the need to project positivity. There is so much negativity out there. I you know it's like be the change you want to see in the world. I'm officially, this is me sending good vibes to everyone who's listening to this. I swear to God, we are more different than we are, or more similar than we are different. Uh, I, I really, truly believe that. And as, as, as many obstacles as it seems like there are, I'm, I remain optimistic about the future. So. I, I think, I, I don't think that, I think that the middle income earner in America is being hollowed out, but I, I push back on a positive note and I, I posit that the, the silent majority in the middle is growing in America. Mm. And I think that that's a very good thing. I think that the further extreme to the right or the left they go, the more people are saying, bridge too far, not for me. And I actually see, I mean, because if you look at the ranks of independent voters, they're growing. I agree. All right, Danielle, this has been a ton of fun. I love how we started in, uh, you know, economy and markets and we transitioned to uh, just philosophizing about life. But I love doing this with you. I feel like we always have great conversations. So I appreciate it. It's great. I've enjoyed your time. Um, Happy Friday, but they're one and the same. We have Mm. to always keep that in mind. Because the nihilism that you described that I hope goes away, and I I share your enthusiasm and optimism, it's, it affects the economy. So we're we're not, our, our, our discussion didn't transition. We just, we just started describing it in different ways. 
I agree. Um, tell us a little bit. Uh, I'm sure many viewers will be familiar with your service, Quill Intelligence. In case they're not, uh, give them a sense of what it is, uh, what exactly it is, and what kind of information they could expect. So we um, we say that we're always digging in the weeds. We're always looking for economic data to lead us and guide us. That people that that most conventional analysts on the sell side just they just gloss right over, or it's just too much work. We love to get down in the weeds. We publish eight times a week. Um, I have a private Twitter feed that our QI Pro clients have access to. We've got a fiery Bloomberg chat room as well. Um, where all kinds of ideas are bandied about on a daily basis. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, I'm going to toot my horn. It's some of the best research I've ever seen conceived because we have absolutely no agenda at Quill Intelligence. We just, we call it like we see it. Mm. Well, guys, you heard uh, Danielle's analysis in this episode. Highly recommend that you check out her work at Quill. I uh, will provide a link in the show notes. Danielle, thanks as always for your time. And I will see you in person. I guess it'll be airing on, uh, on Wednesday. So I've already had DAS. I'll see you in person very soon. Yes, indeed. See you in New York. Take care. See you in New York. Cheers.